0: We began, uh, in part one, we talked about Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, and we talked about the idea of uh, what it means, as Ruth said, you know, the Lord led me out full, but now he's brought me back empty. And the story behind that is that Israel was going through a time of incredible difficulty, And God told him this. He said, when famine comes, difficulty comes. He says, ask me why it's not raining, but don't leave the land. Ask me why this trouble is here, but don't leave the land. And what Naomi and her husband did and their two sons, they left the land, they went into Moab. And we don't point a finger at them. We're not critical of them. We probably all of us know what it's like to be in a tough place and you just don't know what to do or where to go, but they forgot the command of the Lord to stay in the land. God had said, when trouble comes, dig in deeper, come closer, don't leave the land. But they went to Moab and um, she said that I left full, I left with the blessing of God, but now trying to fix this in my way, I've lost everything. I've lost my husband. I've lost my land. I've lost our money. I lost my sons, lost one of my daughters-in-law, and all I have is Ruth, the daughter-in-law that was coming back with me, and we throw ourselves on the Lord's mercy. Sometimes the journey to fullness begins that way, and we've all been there. I know what it's like to move from a position of fullness to a position of emptiness because I wasn't patient or because I left the land, or I left the place that I was supposed to be. We've all known that. We walk in disobedience, and anybody that says they've never had an empty moment, they're, they're either very, very exceptional or very, very dense and didn't, didn't catch it. But then we talked last week about the flavoring of life. If we're going to walk in fullness, we've got to realize that all of us have a seasoning and it's like this. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Paul said, let your speech be seasoned with grace. And Jesus told his disciples, there's Herod, there's the, the Sadducees, there's the Pharisees. All of them have strong opinions about things. And if you're not careful, their seasoning, their leaven can take biblical truth that you hold to and twist it and distort it. He, he said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And we talked about the danger of embracing all of God's word, but becoming so critical and becoming judgmental like we see happening in the church today. Um, if we lived in the days of Jesus, the only religious group we would have probably felt comfortable with is the Pharisees. Because they began with a stand for holiness and the full word of God. They believed every verse. They believed it from Genesis to Malachi and uh, the the Old Testament. They believed it word for word. But sometimes um, conservatism, I'm not talking political when I say that. I'm talking theological. Sometimes conservatism can go bad and it becomes legalism. Sometimes you can have a liberal bent like the Sadducees and it can be absolutely death dealing. The Sadducees, they picked what verses they would obey. They picked which books of the Bible they would accept. They had a cafeteria mindset. They went through the scriptures and said, I'll take a little of that. I'll take a little of that. None of that, but I'll take two of those. And that got them in trouble. And Jesus said, You think, he said, you study the scriptures and you think in them you have eternal life. Um, He was saying that to all of the, the Jewish leaders, but he spoke particularly to the Sadducees. And he said, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures. And because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. And then there was Herod. Herod was not a believer by any stretch of the imagination, but Herod kind of reflects our culture. Um, Jesus also told them to beware of the leaven of Herod. And Herod's uh, leaven is what we call legalism. Uh, an, An old King James word that's a good word, a very accurate word is licentiousness, but we don't usually use that today. If you call somebody licentious, you know, in a restaurant, they wouldn't know whether they should say thank you or punch you in the face. But it was a word for lawlessness. The Bible says that Herod loved listening to John, but he was also afraid of John. And he said that um, uh, he he was entertained by John, but he never had a changed life. that's, That's a lot of churches today we try to entertain And we try to say, you know, if we can have the best show in town, they'll come to our church and leave other churches. Jesus said, don't let that seasoning take place. Today, I want us to start on a trip. I have a very technical message today. I'm praying that it won't be boring. It's the most technical message uh, that I've preached in years. but I want you to know as we go forward, we're not going to have a lot of technical messages, but this one is very important. I want to talk to you about the Christian experience of salvation. I want to use today's message to explain to you where we're going over the next few months. It's going to take us uh, about uh, four or five months to get through this thing that I want to start today. But I want you to understand, as we begin our study, it will be a study in a $3.75 word, soteriology. And that word, soteriology, has to do with the doctrine of salvation. Loved ones, if we're ever going to get to a full cup, we have got to lay aside our shallow understanding And we've got to understand the basics and they're basic, but they're not simple. They are incredible riches, about 14 words that are used in scripture to describe this thing called being saved. Now it's not 14 things that you go through an assembly line, you know, where you get this, then you get this, then you get this. It's a simultaneous uh, occurrence um, that are a, la- a lifetime of growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We're going to talk about that, but let me tell you why. And I'm just going to ask you to bear with me today uh, because it's gonna, I've, I've given you a big set of notes because I know I can't cover every word in the notes, but I want you to have it. Because the journey I'm asking you to join me on in the weeks ahead are going to depend, your success in the journey is going to depend on how well you understand the message today. Because we're going to give you a description of this thing that you and I have entered into called salvation. It's not just, I was bad, now I'm good. I mean, that's true, praise God. But something phenomenal has happened. And the less we understand what it really means to be saved, the less we're going to walk in victory. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, that's the church that R.T. pastored for about 25 years, he had a saying that kind of irritated people, but there's a lot of truth in it. He said, when God's people get discouraged or in despair, they come to me and want me to encourage them. And he said, "What I have found is that when God's people are discouraged, they don't need encouragement; they need doctrine." You say, "Wait a minute! No, I no 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 I'll take encouragement." He said, no, the more depressed you are, the more confused you are, the more distressed you are, the more you need to roll up your sleeves and dig in and understand doctrine because anything that I can make you feel better about, somebody else can take away your joy. He said, I want you to be encouraged and there, there's a place for encouragement, but he said, you don't need encouragement. He said, you need doctrine. He said, because the more God's people understand what the Bible teaches about this thing called salvation, the less discouraged they will be, the less they will walk in despair. Sometimes we're in the middle of something phenomenal and we just don't understand it. Uh, I'm going to ask my son, Jeremy, to come and help me illustrate this. And um, then we're going to weave our way through this, uh, through this message today. What a guy. What a guy. This is my oldest son. When he was 17 years old, I saw him come forward to pray for America. This was before we built this building. We had just seen the uh, the twin towers go down in New York City, and that Sunday we prayed for America. I saw Jeremy and other guys his age come forward to pray for America. I began to weep. I said, we're, we're, we may be at war. My son may be, may be called to fight. I didn't know what was going on. There was such a feeling of uncertainty, such a feeling of despair, almost of hopelessness. And um, I was scheduled for a meeting, uh, international media ministries that was in Washington and New York City. And Jeremy was going with me. I, I, I don't like traveling by myself. And, uh, and Jeremy was going with me. And I want to tell you, when, when they, the trip was on, we had some things that had to cancel. But we drove to Washington. And, and Jeremy will tell you, when we saw the Pentagon from the interstate, it was breathtaking. I mean, it, it, the pictures did not do justice, that devastation. We drove uh, into Washington, had our meetings all through Washington, and then we took the train up to New York City. And when we went down to the uh, Twin Tower site, you could still get fairly close. It was, it was a gut-wrenching thing. There were the, the law enforcement, the policemen, we had all of our meetings, met with David Wilkerson, met with some other people, and it was just, it was just a gut-wrenching thing. But, but we had a couple of nights off. So I said, um, Jeremy, uh, I said, I want you to go with me to Yankee Stadium. The Baltimore Orioles were in town. Uh, this was 2001, September. Just, it was like 10 days after um, the, the, the attack. And we got to Yankee Stadium. I'd been there before. But it, there was just a there was a, 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 a pall over the stadium. Children were afraid, and when I'd been there before, kids were running everywhere. Now now they're holding on to their dad, looking around, don't know where the bad guys are. More police and dogs than I think there were fans, and I could tell that everybody was in a funk. And I want to tell you, I, he he wasn't prepared for what I'm going to say today, so you have to bear with me. I said, Jeremy, this is the capital of baseball. Now, you gotta understand, I grew up when baseball was a game and and not so much a business. I I get irritated with the culture we have today. I want entertainers to shut up and sing. I don't want them to have comments on the government. Uh, I don't want athletes to have comments on the government. Uh, Whether they're right or wrong, I I just think sports are one of the few places of refuge left for us, and and if I wanted to hear from somebody chasing a ball, I would just talk to my dog. So I grew up, and and I and I agree with some of them. Please don't get me wrong, but I I grew up when baseball was a game. You know, Uh, I, I so I said Jeremy. I said, this is Yankee Stadium. And he didn't grovel at, like I thought he should. <laughs> he didn't, you know, he was, oh, man, this is great. And I said, Jeremy, let me explain to you what you're looking at. And we started at the main gate, and I walked around, and I pointed out things. I said, let me, let me tell you about Manny's baseball land that was here since the 40s. I said, let me tell you what happened here. Let me tell you what happened here. Let me show you the the old facade that they just kind of remodeled, but it's still there. I walked around to the other side. I said, right over there, you see that over there? That is where the polo grounds were. You could stand here and watch the New York Giants. He said, I thought they were the San Francisco Giants. I said, they were until they moved them. (laughs) Them and the Dodgers went west. I went through all of that. We went inside. I started at home plate. I told him about all the catchers that were there. I told him about the great moments in sports. It was probably, it was well over an hour, probably close to an hour and a half. I gave him this tour. This is what happened here. This is what happened here. This is what, I said, right there is where Roger Maris's 61st home run went over the fence uh, and, and, uh, he broke B- uh, Babe Ruth's record. I said, nobody's ever hit a ball out of Yankee stadium. But I said, you see that little plaque right up there? There used to be a thing right up there. It's, it's when they remodeled the stadium, they moved it. But I said, that's 18 inches from the top. Mickey Mantle hit a home run in left center field. And that is the closest that anybody's ever come to knocking it out of the park. And, and, uh, I said, uh, he said, Mickey Mantle's your favorite. I said, Mickey Mantle was a god with a little G, with a little G. <laughs> and I told him about how, you know, the, they had the monument park. I gave him this hour and a half tour. And, and this is what Jeremy said. I wrote it in my journal. I don't even know if he'll remember this. He said, Dad, this place is awesome. And I, I, I looked in his eyes. He, yeah, th- this place is awesome. And this is what he said. I understand now why this is such a special place. I see why you and others love it so much. And he said, Dad, this place is awesome. And I said, Jeremy, the only thing that would make it better is for me to catch a home run ball or a foul ball. And um, I've told you this story. I came close one time to... Um, the Yankee first baseman hit a foul ball back and, and it was spinning, had such a wicked spin, I caught it, but it just bounced out of my hand. I said, it would be fabulous if I could just get a, get a home run ball or a foul ball. We're out in left field bleachers. I say, let's go get our seat. And we go out there and we're walking like this. And he's, he's, he's dad, thank you for bringing me. It's one of the most precious moments of my life. And we're out there during batting practice and we're sitting there and balls keep coming out there. Jeremy's to my left as I remember. I'm sitting here and um, balls are coming out there. And then um, a Baltimore Oriole in batting practice hits one and it's headed to us. I see it zeroing in on us. This is my one chance (laughs) in life This is 2001. I didn't know if I was going to live much longer. You know, this is my one chance. And I said, Jeremy, Jeremy, it's coming. And I bruised his arm and, you know, it was coming. And I saw these two guys, bleacher bums coming over and, and they were moving into our row and I did my elbow up and knocked them back down. And then I did what was unthinkable. I did what was unthinkable. I went over to Jeremy, and I I thought the people there were in the front row were pulling over. I don't consciously know why I did it, but I remember grabbing Jeremy like this, and when they started over, I went, and pushed him to knock them over. I had knocked these guys down, and it was a, I got it. And Jeremy, Jeremy says, Dad, you pushed me into those people and over the row. And I said, Jeremy, I don't consciously remember doing that. I am so sorry. And this, this is one of the things he said. He teased me about it a lot. He said, well, I guess a place this magical, I'd do some pretty wild things too to catch a ball. And so today... I need to make it up to my son. This is the magic ball. This is what I caught with my bare hands after whipping three people and sacrificing my son. So this says, with love from dad, Yankee Stadium with my son Jeremy, September 2001, left field bleachers. You deserve it. And I love you. Thank you, buddy. You say, Pastor, that's crazy. Not if you understand Yankee Stadium. Loved ones... Of course, I'm trying to be funny, but I want to tell you something. I'm, I'll tell you what I've been asking God to give you. I've been asking God to give you a Yankee Stadium moment. I've been asking God to help you understand this thing called the Christian experience of salvation so that when you come to church, it's not just a building. Now, I don't mean you want to push people around or pull people out of their seat or give people elbow to the chin. I'm not, you don't want to do that. But I want to tell you something. Jeremy understood from my explanation how, as far as baseball, how special that place was. And when I mistreated him, he didn't like it probably, but he understood. He understood. He says, this place is so sacred I understand. Now, all's well that ends well. He gets the ball, and it's because I'm getting so old he could take it from me if he wanted to now. But, uh, loved ones, I wanted to illustrate to you something. We are in a quest for encouragement, but we need to be in a quest for doctrine. We we are wanting things to get back to normal, but I don't know if they're ever going to get back to normal. So what we need to do is we need to go into the presence of the Lord and start finding treasures and start focusing on true riches. It's not about us feeling better. I want to feel better. But I tell you what I believe this this year is about, I believe this year is about us understanding the nature of true Christianity. Now I've got a lot of notes and I, I won't have time to, um, we'll, we'll probably go, this will be probably one of our longer messages today. But it's only so that we can get into these words that I want to talk to you about. Um, there are some treasures that are worth seeking There are some truths that are worth learning. And I I don't think Jeremy was just hoodwinking me. I think he always was a Yankees fan. He always liked Yankee Stadium. But when he got there and I said, this is what's happened in this place, the whole thing changed. I tell you what I'm asking God to do for you over the next four or five months as we work through these words I'm asking you to have a revelation of the splendor of salvation like you have never had. I'm about to give you some words. We're not going to talk about them today. I just wanted to give them to you. And I want to tell you, these are the treasures that we're looking for. I want you to know, loved ones, that I want you to be able to explain these words backwards and forwards. I want us to become the kind of church like it was when Moses and Joshua built, the, the, uh, Joshua built the, the stones, the memorial stones. And the Lord said, when your children ask you what do these stones mean, that Joshua was able to respond to them and say this is what happened. This is why these stones were here. See, just like I was able to take Jerry and I say, this is why this plaque is here. That's why this star is on that pole. That's why this seat is white when all the other seats around it are blue. This is what happened here. I said, this seat over here. He said, why is that one white? I said, because William Frawley, I love Lucy. He had a contract stipulation that whenever the Yankees won the World Series, or, or won the pennant and went to the World Series, he didn't have to go film. And he sat right there. I said, I said, there's 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 history everywhere. And I've watched my son fall more and more in love with something as trivial as baseball and a stadium. And loved ones, my heart is aching. My heart is aching. For us to move to another level of a church where we're not just nominal Christians, where we're not just assemblies of God, we're not just this, that, or the other, but we begin to realize the treasures that are in the house. Now we're going to talk, there's a lot of things we can talk about There is so many subjects, but this for the next few weeks is we're, we want to get filled up with the idea of salvation, what salvation means. Matthew one twenty one, the angel said uh, that she will give birth to a son. He, He was speaking to Joseph. And you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He came to save us, loved ones. He didn't come to reform us. He didn't come to make us comfortable. He didn't come, excuse me, to give us a wish list. He came to make us holy. He came to save us from something that was so destructing. And in Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The central truth is that from both Old and New Testament perspectives, it is foundational that God is our Savior and his kingdom was brought to broken man by the work of Jesus Christ. I, I don't have time. I was going to give you a little exhortation in all these verses Exodus 13, 14 um, talks about God who is our salvation. The song in Exodus 15, 2 says that he has become our salvation. Isaiah 43, 11, he is the God who saves you. Um, Psalm 68, 19 to 20, he is God our savior. He is the God who saves. And then Luke 19, 10, he came to seek and to save that which was lost First Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, said Paul, and I am the very worst of them. This is about being saved. It's not about being prosperous. This is about being saved. It's not about being blessed. That, don't get me wrong. There are blessings that are peripheral to the idea of being saved. But I'm telling you, we are visiting a a spiritual Yankee stadium. Even you Red Sox fans have to admit the glory of Yankee stadium. You say, oh, pastor, you're meddling now. Okay, let's get back. Let's get back to a little more solid ground. But I want to ask you, I I don't even know how we're going to end this service today because this isn't the kind of service where you have an altar call and people respond. I'm asking you to take a trip. I'm asking you, now the youth are going to be blessing our socks off next Sunday, but I'm asking you to get ready over the next two weeks to take a journey to discover 14 magnificently powerful words And if we can get these words under our belt, we will understand what God has done for us. Let me give you these 14 words. And and again, I can't stay close to the outline today, um, or I can't go through it thoroughly. I'll just have to kind of stay close. These 14 words describe four things. Now, you don't have to scribble to write this down, it's all in your notes. But there are four things that take place when a person becomes a child of God. First of all, they have to make choices. They have to make choices. Now, let me say it this way. We have a tendency to think of salvation as a, a, a noun of, of, of being. I, I, I mistyped that in your notes. I will correct it in a minute. We tend to think of salvation as a noun of being. I am saved. I am lost. And it is a noun of being. But more than a noun of being, or at least as much as a noun of being, it's a verb of action. Things happened in the past that mean I'm saved. Things happen in the present that mean I'm saved. Things happen in the future that mean that I am saved. And I want us to understand this. It all begins with these four words. There are choices, there are changes, there are consequences, and there are challenges. We're going to begin next week with the first word of choice. You see there in your notes, the word, not next week, but two weeks from today, the word we will begin with is the word repentance. We Repentance is not just saying, oh, I'm sorry. Because we could be sorry because we got caught. We could be sorry because we don't want to be punished. But repentance is a word that opens a box of incredible blessing and action. And God says, if you want to understand salvation, number one, you need to understand the power of repentance. And repentance is a choice you make. The second word that we're going to learn backwards and forward is the true meaning of the word faith, because we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is a part of it, but faith is our response to grace. We're going to learn the power of confession. You you will find that it's impossible to confess Jesus as Lord and then still live the way you've lived all your life. Confession doesn't make allowance for that. Confession means to say the same thing as. So to confess my sins doesn't mean that, um, yeah, you're right, I'm, I, I'm a sinner. That's the, one of the very first slivers of it. But to confess says, I say the same thing about my life and my sin that you say, Lord. And so it's going to have some dynamic effect on my life. There are also three words we want to talk about that take us past the choice, but take us to change. These powerful words are regeneration. What does it mean to be regenerated? What does it really mean to be born again? Uh, Born again is so easy to trivialize. Rocky Mountain High, John Denver says he was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he'd never been before. He was saying he was reborn when he got to the Rocky Mountains. And I think we can be changed by coming to a new place, but that's nothing like being born again. It's nothing like being uh, regenerated, adoption, conversion. So there are words about choice. There are words about change. There are words about consequence, okay? And what happens because of my choice? What happens because of the change that occurs? Well, number one, I'm forgiven. And when we really understand the power of forgiveness, we'll, we'll never be the same again. We are justified. These are the four most powerful words, I think, in our study of salvation. We're justified. We are redeemed. And we are reconciled. These four words have uh, a terminal dynamic. I am through with what I was. I am something altogether different. And this wonderful work that began in me, God will complete it. And then there are words of the challenge. We are, we have passed from death to life. So how do we live out this salvation while God is doing something in it? We are sanctified and one day it will all be consummated. And the final word that it could have been put anywhere is how do we live in community? Right now there's a war on the church by Christians Saying the church has failed and I don't need the church. You know, I'd be just as well off on the golf course as in the, the sanctuary. And people say things like, I love Jesus, but I hate religion. And all of that has been the fruit of a twisted, perverted understanding of this community called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my concerns. Is that most of Christianity holds a rather anemic view of what happened to us through Jesus? That was illustrated by what um, Dr. Lloyd Jones said. It was illustrated by Jesus, I mean, by uh, Jeremy understanding what Yankee Stadium was and then experiencing what Yankee Stadium is. Okay? Um, When we talk about saved, that carries with it the idea of being made whole. When he saved you, he didn't just say, okay, I'm going to punch your ticket for heaven. You don't have to go to hell. We have been made whole. We have been made whole. And the Hebrew word means to become roomy or spacious or broad. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And we, and we limit that word healed to physical healing. And I do believe in physical healing. We need to see more physical healing. And I believe we will see more physical healing. But I want you to know in its context, that wasn't saying that one of the things that will happen is you'll just be healed physically. No, it meant by his stripes, we are healed. It was the idea of salvation. We are made whole. We are made complete. Now it may include healing, but there's a lot more to salvation than just grinning like a Cheshire cat, getting a raise in pay and thinking uh, all my problems are going to go away. Now, we have to understand Oh, and here's what I want to correct. Under clarifications in your notes, where are we, about page two in your notes? Page two? Uh, I I typed the wrong word there, and and the office didn't know to correct it. Salvation is a verb of action, that's right, as well as a noun of being. Not a noun of action, but a noun of being. In other words, salvation is not just that I've become something new, a noun, I'm a saved man or a saved woman. But I am also uh, the receiver of a verb of action. I am moving forward. I'm moving to completion. I'm moving to maturity. Let me explain it to you. These, these three tenses, I know we've talked about this by way of introduction. Loved ones, for us to truly understand what Jesus is doing in us, we have to understand. Uh, th- this. You don't have to understand this to go to heaven But to fill up, you need to understand that what God is doing in us is a work of tenses. There are some things that he has done. There are some things that he is doing now. But there are some things that will not be done until the day of completion and the return of Jesus Christ. That's why we can't get mad at him because he doesn't give us everything Uh, that we want. And we get mad and say, but you promised. Well, what was the context of the promise? you know, somebody said, when am I going to receive this promise? And they were talking about a particular promise. I said, oh, I can tell you exactly when you're going to receive that promise. I said, the minute you see Jesus. He said, what do you mean by that? Well, when you die, you can receive it. Or when Jesus returns, you can receive it. I don't know if it's going to happen before then or not, but you can count on that. And he said, that's not what I want. I said, that's the case with most of us. (laughs) We have to understand that in the past, back to your notes, there was a point at which I was saved. In the past, there was a point in which I was saved. It's called a crisis. And by crisis, we mean an event in time, not crisis that it was a bad thing. But it happened here. There was a point in time in the past which I was saved. It might have been on a Sunday night altar call. It might have been in your family devotion at home. It might have been listening to Billy Graham preach. Could have been out in the wilderness pouring your heart out to God saying, you know, Lord, I believe your word saved me. Could have been over the kitchen table with a neighbor that's been witnessing to you for months. But someplace you pass from death to life. Now, I also realize they're saying we shouldn't be hard with people that say, I know that I'm a Christian, but I can't tell you where I where I accepted Jesus, especially someone growing up in a liturgical church. They've been being taught about Jesus all their life and they're just following a process. And even though the process is good, there still has to be a place where they say, I accept Jesus, but they may have trouble saying, was that in catechism class or Was that in confirmation or was that in the little boy, when I was a little boy singing in the children's choir? But some point I made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. In the present, okay, the present is not about a point. The present is about a process that I am experiencing. It's a continuance. And in the future, there is a promise that I will receive Okay, now let me, let me just, again, just listen. Don't even worry about taking notes. You've got all of this down. I don't have time to, to elaborate on everything. Salvation as an experience in the past. First thing I want you to know is that if you are saved, it is something that happened in the past. Not only was the work of Jesus in the past, but you, if you are saved now, there was a point in the past where you opened your heart to the Lord. It might look different in different churches. It might look different in different personalities. But um, we know that it was something that happened in the past. It was written in Greek in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is an accomplished fact with continuing results. An accomplished fact with continuing results. Paul would write to the Ephesians, for by grace you were saved. Other translations, for by grace you have been saved. You, this happened to you in the past, but your works are continuing. Your life is continuing. Your growth is continuing. So it is an accomplished fact with continuing results. Some passages like 2 Timothy 1, nine and Titus 3.5 use the aorist tense. And that means that it is an event and consequence that's firmly rooted in the past. Uh, the Aris tent says this is your status. This is what you're doing because of what has happened in the past. Okay. Um, uh, Ooh, and we could talk about these passages in Hebrews, but let's talk about salvation in the present. Now this, we shift from perfect tense and heiress tense, we shift to the present tense. That would make sense. Experience in the present, we're talking about the present tense. And a present tense uh, word says that salvation is an ongoing process that is occurring in the present moment. He says uh, the gospel is foolishness in Corinthians. He says the gospel is foolish to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are now being saved, it's the power of God. He says, God is doing something in us and it's ongoing. And that is where the power of God is. The tense carries the idea of continuation as in growing and maturing. Paul spoke to the Philippians and he said this. He said, I've told you before, I tell you again, work out your own salvation with fear and and trembling. He wasn't saying, try to get saved. He was saying, you've got to grow in this experience of salvation You've got to work it out with the superintendency of the Holy Spirit. Be mindful, be fearful, have trembling. No, this is a very serious thing. I not only have been saved, but I've got to keep growing in that. Yeah. Hebrews 2.3 says, how can we be saved? If we neglect, so great a salvation. Um, He says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul does. He says, we who are being saved. One translation says, we who are right now in the process of being saved are a pleasing aroma to God. The significance is that since we've already been saved by the completed work of Christ, it's time for us to live out the fullness of what we really are in Jesus. Okay, are you with me? You were saved at a point in the past. You are being saved right now by a process. You, is called sanctification. You and I are being made more like Jesus every day. Now I know we may have some days of setback. And I know we may have some days when our spouse says, I don't think today was a growth day for you. <laughs> but overall, overall, we are growing and it's time for us to live out the fullness of what we really are. But salvation is also an experience in the future. Yes. Salvation is not only an event in the past that produces action in the present. It's also a process that will eventually find completion in the future. And do you know that the future tense, we shall be saved? Yes. Our testimony is based on I was saved. Right. Our our. Our apologies to each other for bad behavior is based on, I'm a work in progress. But our hope is built, and it's the most commonly used tense in the New Testament, is that I will be saved one day. In other words, I, it will be completed one day. Romans 13, 11 says, salvation is nearer now than it was yesterday. This is the most, the most commonly used tense in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says that we are appointed to receive salvation in the future. It's coming to us. Hebrews 9.28 says Jesus came in the first time he suffered and died for our sins. But he's coming back the second time without sin unto salvation. What that means is he's coming back the second time to bring salvation to completeness that he has already started in us. Peter said in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 9, he said, you've got to fight the enemy because he wants to stop your progress in moving toward what God wants you to be. Hurry, folks, keep up with me. <laughs> now, let me give you what William Hull says is a summary of Romans 5, 1, and 2. Since we have already been justified or acquitted in the past, we now, and this is worse than the Living Bible, but it helps. I mean, not, not Living Bible, Bible. Amplified Bible. He says, we now go on having peace with God in the present. And because of our current access to divine grace in the present, even now we rejoice in the hope of one day sharing the glory of God in the future. Having already been justified by the blood of Christ in the past, that is by his death, one day we will be saved from wrath by the same Christ in the future. If God was willing to reconcile us through the death of His Son in the past while we were still His enemies, will He not even more be willing to save us in the future? Why? Because we now in the present have Christ's life in us by faith. Being confident both of our reconciliation already received in the past and of our salvation yet to come in the future, we can now rejoice in the present over what God has done in the past and is doing now and will yet do for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, guys, this is a process. This is a point in time. This is a goal for the future. And I want you to know that he who began this work is carrying it out now and he's able to bring it to completion. That ought to change the way we feel about salvation. When we believe that, we don't think folks are in and out of the kingdom. When we believe that, we don't write somebody off because they had a bad day. Somebody sent me a thing about Clint Eastwood and I, I wish I could remember it. It was a Clint Eastwood quote. He, it's something about some people being so uh, pitiful that it, it, he, it, he wonders how you could fit so much stupid in one head. You know? <laughs> Sometimes we feel that way about our fellow b- believers until we understand I know what God did for them and I know what God's going to do for them. So while we're working this out in the middle, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Okay, now let's tie it together. To understand that salvation is past, present, and future, we need to understand something. We need to understand the peril from which we are saved. You can't understand what God is doing until you understand what you've been saved from and its past, present, and future. You need to understand not only the peril from which we've been saved, but the purpose for which we are saved. See, He didn't just save us to give us a ticket to heaven. I mean, if that was the only reason, that'd be good enough. But He saved us from a peril for a purpose And then we have to understand as we wrap this up today, the person by whom we were saved. I know you know all of this, but I don't know if you've ever seen it this way. Let's talk, number one, about the peril from which we are saved. And all of these have to do with past, present, and future. What am I saved from? We were saved from the penalty of sin in the past. Loved ones, that doesn't mean that I'm saved from the penalty of my past sins. No, at a point in the past where we accepted Jesus, He gave us eternal life and His forgiveness covered our sins, past, present, and future. That doesn't mean that we don't need to repent from time to time. That doesn't mean that we don't need to get right over bad attitudes. But what I'm saying is when we come to Him, The provision for forgiveness, past, present, and future, is poured into our life. We were saved from the penalty of sin in the past. No child of God ought to get up in the morning and be afraid of hell. We ought to be thankful we were redeemed from hell. But I want to tell you something. I haven't worried about hell in decades for me but I do worry about it for other people and I want to win them to the Lord because He is able to save us from the penalty of sin in the past. You say, well, what is, it, what is He doing right now? Oh, here's, here, this is great. We are being saved from the power of sin in the present. Every day is not a struggle to stay out of hell for me. Every day is a struggle. Am I going to cave in to temptation or not? Am I going to cave in to unrighteousness or not? Am I going to let my look linger a second too long? Am I going to let my bitterness take root? Am I going to let my anger rule the moment? No, 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 no. I am being delivered from the power of sin. I know I've already been delivered from the penalty of sin. I know I'm not going to hell, but I also know that I am in the process of living in victory over sin. I don't have to do what I used to do. No temptation is so strong that I can't say no. So I've been delivered from the penalty of sin and I'm I'm being delivered from the power of sin. I'm getting stronger every day. And the day is coming. This is the future. I will be saved from the presence and even the possibility of sin in the future. Okay, I want to tell you something. I have been saved from going to hell. But I've also been saved from living my life under the dominion of the devil. And the day is coming when every tear will be dried, every pain will be left behind, and I will be in a place where it's not even possible for sin or the presence of sin to touch me anymore. We know there'll be no sin there because Jesus said, he named all of these evil things, and he said, those things won't be allowed into that city. Somebody asked me one time, they said, Pastor, what ha- what happens if you know, Adam and Eve sinned in a perfect environment. What if we go to heaven and it's a perfect environment? And what if pastor Justin messes up and we have to start this whole thing all over again? No, they didn't say Justin. I'm kidding. But I said, that'll never happen. And they said, how do you know it'll never happen? Because when the scripture talks about us going to heaven, going to the presence of the Lord, he says, sin will be no more. Pain will be no more. This will be no more. And then he says this, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Loved ones, there's not going to be a chance for man to mess up. There won't be any temptation there, there won't be any sin present there, there won't even be the possibility of sin. That's the peril from which we're saved. I'm not going to hell, I don't have to sin. And the day is coming when it won't even be possible or present in our existence. We need to be like the little boy that was reading a, you know, a thriller mystery. And the bad guy kept winning and kept winning and kept winning. And the little boy couldn't stand it anymore. And he just turned to the last chapter and found out the good guy wins, the bad guy loses. And then he went back to where he was reading and the bad guy was just rejoicing and the little boy chuckled and said, you wouldn't be so proud if you knew what I knew. Yeah. <laughs> but we're also saved, not from apparel, but we're saved for a purpose. Amen. We're saved for an experience of grace in the past. Loved ones, grace is God's good will toward us. Grace is God's good work within us. And in the past, God saved me by grace and I live life through grace. But I don't just rejoice in the grace of the past. I rejoice in the growth in the present. Ephesians 4.13 says, God is going to keep working in us until we reach full maturity, until our glass is full. He's going to keep working in us. He, He filled my life with grace which enables me to do what I was meant to do and to be what I was meant to be. He fills my life with growth. I don't have to work from my position of inadequacy. More and more I'm becoming like him. And he also says this grace and growth are going to work together to give you an experience of glory in the future. Glory in the future. Yes, I tell you what, why can I rejoice in Jesus? Because of the grace that he's shown me. Why do I have hope today? My hope's not in politics. My hope's not in government. My hope's not in, in, even in the Yankees. What is my hope in? My hope is in the glory of the future. Now, here's the best part. The person by whom we are saved. Why are we Christians? Because we had outstanding upbringings. Some of us did have uh, uh, outstanding upbringings. And others of us had a dysfunctional family that there's no reason in the world we ought to be serving God today. No, that's not why we're serving Him. We are saved and we're serving Him because we are saved by an incarnate Christ in the past it's not us. It's not, Paul would say, by any works of righteousness which we have done. Why are we Christians? i tell you why. Because the second person of the Trinity, God, we know Him as Jesus, came to earth fully God, fully man. He wasn't half God and half man. You say, boy, I can't understand that. Get in line. None of us can understand it. We accept it. We believe it. It's like the Trinity. You know, some people say, well, if I can't explain it, I'm not going to believe it. Boy, that's a classic mistake. Yeah. But he came to earth as God. He humbled himself, took on the form of man, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. <coughs> he was just as much God as if he were not man at all. He was just as much man as if he were not God at all. He's, there's never been anything like him fully God, fully man. And then he lived a sinless life, a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross, I should have been crucified. You should have been crucified. But he died a substitutionary death on the cross. He was physically raised from the grave by the power of God. And he ascended to the Father in heaven where he lives forever to make intercession for us. Loved ones, all of our hope, all of our future, all of the peace with the past, all of that is made possible by the incarnate Christ and what he did. But we're also being saved by the indwelling Christ in the present. See, he's not incarnate anymore, but he is now indwelling. Let me tell you what he does. Contemporization, I wanted to talk about this, but y'all just haven't listened fast enough. But basically, basically what it means is not only did he do what he did with the disciples, but he said, I will continue to do that with every generation of believers. We'll talk about that sometime in the future, maybe. This is the way the indwelling Christ affects us. Just look at, in just one chapter, just Romans 8. Just, just Romans 8. Verses 1 through 8, He gives me freedom. There's now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Because they live by, not the law of the flesh, but by the law of the Spirit. We have freedom. Uh, Verses 9 through 11, we have life. Verses 12 to 17, we've been adopted. Verses 18 to 25, we have hope. Verses 26 to 27, the Spirit indwells us. Verses 28 to 30, we live with purpose. And verses 31 to 39, we live in victory. See, we, we thank God for the incarnate Christ, but loved ones, we have an indwelling Christ that gives us victory. And and can I say this? Can I say this? You say, well, boy, I tell you what, this this is wonderful. This This is just so much better than... But can I tell you this? Everything that we... You think of your most glorious moment. You think of your most glorious deliverance. You think of the moment when Christ broke through and did a miraculous thing for you. And you just say, oh, I was just lifted into another heaven. Whatever you have experienced with Jesus... Do you know what Paul says three times? It's only a down payment of the future. In other words, I've, I've had some pretty powerful encounters. I've had some life-changing experiences. But God said, all that is is just a little pinch out of the barrel to tell you there's power for whatever you need. Do you know that we, the vast overwhelming majority of victory in the Christian life, we won't even know till we get to the other side. And the reason is that we are saved by an invincible Christ in the future. See, he is doing above and beyond anything we can ask or think using a pinch out of the barrel and he he when he was here on earth he defeated the devil with one hand tied behind his back because jesus limited himself philippians 2 tells us that he laid aside some of his prerogatives he laid aside he was fully god but he laid aside some of his rights as god because it was necessary for him to show us that as a man it's possible to obey god and fulfill destiny, but the day is coming when we see him. When we see him, I want to tell you something. I've had people say, "Oh, I hope I'm not disappointed in heaven." What, Pastor? What if I get there and I'm disappointed? What if I get there and my thorn in the flesh hasn't gone away? What What if I get there and I don't like? It says there's no marrying, and giving in marriage. What, what if I don't like my new relationship with my wife? What What, what if I don't like this? I say, loved ones, listen, listen, you and I, it's joy unspeakable and full of glory, just lifting the lid and smelling. You're not going to be disappointed in heaven. So what are the Christian life lessons? How do we end this? Thank you guys for making it so easy to preach today. uh, It's, it's been a mouthful. Here are the Christian life lessons. Number one, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are saved. You need to abandon that theology that says, well, I got mad at somebody pulled out in front of me. Maybe if Jesus had come right then, I would have gone to hell. No. Loved ones, you know how I feel about sin. We are are against it. (laughs) We, we, are, we don't make allowances for sin. The Bible says, let those that name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We're not interested in a grace that just says, live any way you want to. It doesn't really matter. But I want to tell you, it is, it is blasphemous. It is dishonoring to Christ to think that the salvation we have is so tentative that it can be lost because of a, a mood we're in or a mistake that we make. I'm not teaching that live any way you want to, it doesn't matter. I don't believe that at all. But I want you to know that God is so able to keep you that in our good days and our bad, we're secure in Savior's love. The second thing I wanna tell you is that Jesus promised to complete what he began in you. Well, pastor, it, it looks like I've lost a lot of ground. Maybe you have, but he's going to finish. You say, yeah, but I don't know. I'm not where I used to be. Well, he knows that. That's why he loves you so much. When you start living in rebellion and bad attitudes, he'll whop you upside the head spiritually. It's called chastisement. Because he's made a promise. He says, I'm going to complete what I began in you. Your wife says, I don't think you can do it, Lord. (laughs) He says, I understand if I had to live with him like you, I'd be saying the same thing. (laughs) You guys know I'm kidding. But we've got to understand when he said, I'll save you, he (laughs) saved us. And the work that he began in us in the past and is processing now He's going to bring it to completion in the future. Now, here's the last thing. Here's the last thing. You and I need to know that nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can take you out of his hand. You say, yeah, I know, Pastor, I know that. No, you don't. Because For the last two years, you've thought Black Lives Matter could take you out of his hand. You thought the Ku Klux Klan could take you out of his hand. You thought that Joe Biden could take you out of his hand. You thought Donald Trump had taken you out of his hand. You're 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 still you're still fighting the wrong battles. You say, well, you just don't know what I've been through. I know I don't. You don't know what I've been through. I mean, do we really want to say you? We really want to start start showing scars. You know, I can tell you the difference. The difference between a mature person. They're embarrassed by their scars. You know, they, they don't want somebody to know they, they, they cut three inches out of their arm not paying attention with the power saw. They'll wear long sleeve shirts for six months. They don't want their scars to be shown. But kids, I want a, I want a Flintstones bandage. I want a Batman bandage. I want a big bandage tell you what, my kids were that way. I was that way. My grandkids are that way. Whenever they get the slightest boo-boo, they want the biggest bandage, and they want to wear it as long as they can to show their pain. Loved ones, I'm not trying to be, I've just had to pastor you the last couple of years. I had to pastor my wife the last couple of years. And the most unfair thing in the world is she's had to pastor me the last couple of years. Loved ones, I think I've earned the right to say this. You got to decide if you're going to just keep wearing your band aids and keep talking about the kicks in the head, or do you want to pack up and let's go out of the valley of despair and let's find out what these 14 words really mean? We're all broken, we're all selfish. We all are unable to understand the pain and suffering of anybody else. We know that. But loved ones, at some point, at some point, there has to be, you know, uh, a a statute of limitations on your bitterness towards your parents. At some point, there has to be a statute of limitations on what somebody did to you or what somebody failed to do to you. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not minimizing, I struggle with things where I didn't feel like I was treated right. I wish I could tell you that I had the, the, the maturity to just say, oh, they were just whatever, and I'll move on. Every once in a while, I'll reach that. And as soon as I get that one taken care of, I think of somebody else. <laughs> and you know what most of mine are? Most of mine are from decades ago that have just rooted themselves in my psyche. And we can't live like that. We can't live like that. I tell you what I want to do. I'm going to unpack in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to decide what's worth carrying forward. I'm going to come next week and celebrate with the youth. But between now and the next Sunday, I'm going to be unpacking the garbage in my life. I'm going to be unpacking the offense in my life. I'm going to be unpacking the pain in my life. And I tell you what, I'm going to do. I'm going to get stripped down to as light a load as I can because I am going to march into the kingdom of glory. I am going to learn what repentance really means. I'm going to learn what forgiveness really means. I'm going to learn what justification really means because. At Christianity in its best is just a pinch of what I'm going to inherit. Why in the world do I want to carry this stuff? I don't. Oh. What do you think, Justin? We're going to move forward? i tell you how we need to end this today. Well, I don't know how we need to end this today. But let me tell you what I think we need to do. Ministry team's going to be ready. They'll lead us back into the presence of God. As always, if there's anybody here in Brown Chapel online, you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's the starting point. That's where we start. Come to a prayer partner or call. Um, if you're watching online, there'll be somebody manning the phones that'll be glad to pray with you. Um Just get with one of the prayer teams and say, I want to know Jesus and nothing would make us happier than for you to do that today. Others are here. Um, I I know I've, I've, I've been seeing some that I know that they've lost children recently or parents recently, friends, siblings. There's so much death and sickness going on right now. You may just need the blessing of your brothers and sisters to pray for you. Please know that you're on our hearts. I've never seen anything like this. I I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to define it. I know that there just seems to be a storm of suffering. And we want you to know we're praying to the best of our ability for everybody we know about. You may need somebody to just put their arms around you and just pray with you for your loved one. There may be others you say, I need healing or I need a job or I need resolution of a family conflict. That's a wonderful thing about the people of God. It's a wonderful thing about coming to church. There are people ready to pray for you. Would you stand with me, please? Father, in the strong name of Jesus, we ask you to help us. We may not always have answers. And Lord, I'm thinking, you know, I've got to leave this celebration to go to a funeral. It's, it's like we're up and down, up and down. But Lord... We we want you to know that we believe in the power of this experience of salvation. Now, we've already decided we're not going to let the wrong seasoning be in our lives. We've already decided we're coming out of Moab and going back to the land where we belong. And now, Lord, I ask you to help us. Forgive us for believing an incomplete gospel, a distorted gospel. And Lord, help us to fall in love with 14 words over the next four or five months that will change our very existence. Help us to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.